Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 383. This program is a merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuchalena and Miriam Baschayis Sara Altes, and Yukusil ben Leah Rochel and Rochel Bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todes ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel Altes. So this week, first week of for the month of Tevis, we're also on the last Parsha of Sefer Bereish, is the first of the five Hamisha Chum Shetera, Parshas Vayechi. So we will be speaking about Parshas Vayechi. This week is also Asar Betevis, the 10th of Tevis, the first of the four fasts that we are obligated to fast. And uh, as well as many other questions that have come in related both following up Hanukkah, Heitavis, and other relevant subjects. So this is a good opportunity to invite you and welcome you and encourage you to submit any question you like. Nothing is taboo, nothing is off limits. At chsidasupply.com, there's a forum there, completely anonymous, as well as other resources which you can access there, the previous archives, 382 episodes of My Life Chassidah Supplied, we're already in the eighth year, as well as the contest of all these years, both uh, the essay submissions and the creative submissions, and other resources, including the daily class that I give in Hemshech Ayim Beis, the classic magnum opus of the Rebbe Rashab, and other resources on Samachvov and Sadiq Dalit and different Chassidish discourses, a full array of Chassidus applied at chassidusapplied.com. So, with that, let's go right into, we'll begin with Pashas Vayechi. The Alter Rebbe says, to live with the times. And what he meant was, as was explained afterwards, with the time, with the Pasha, the Torah chapter that we read in during that time. Since Torah is Chayenu Ve'erich Yemenu, Torah is our life and our sustenance. And Istakar Ba'araisa Ba'ra'alma, God looked into the Torah and created the world. It's the blueprint for creation, so it makes total sense. If you want to know what's going on in time and space, you look into the Torah that created time and space. And specifically, each period in time, each week has its particular energy, you can say. And the chapter of the Torah tells us the energy of that week to live with the times which is a, that alone is a, a tremendous lesson in life, that we have a guide, we have a compass, a GPS, a spiritual GPS by which to, follow, by which, to which guides us, which we can follow in trying to understand our lives, how to understand the world around us, and trying to understand how to fulfill our mission. So no matter what challenges that we face, whatever we encounter, we have this guide that goes along with us. And that's where the Teda has been for the Jewish people from the beginning of time. It traveled with them. It traveled both from heaven to earth and also traveled with them through all their trials and tribulations, guiding, directing, empowering, inspiring, and giving instruction, tater from the word heira, a lesson, a directive, how to live our lives. So now, when we're in the last week of Parshay for Bereshis, Parshay Vayechi, so let's begin with that. So the first general question, of course, is what's the story? The story is Vayichi Yaakov Beretz Mitzrayim Shvas Rishon. That's how the chapter begins. 
following the reconciliation and the reunion of Yosef and his brothers, after that whole ordeal, so Yaakov and the Shvatim, they all come to Mitzrayim, and now they're living in the best part of the land. Yosef was viceroy of Egypt, second in command, Mishnah Lamelech, so he gave them the best part of the land, and they were honored, because Yosef was honored. This would only lead, the next chapter would begin a new uh, saga, a new ordeal, maybe the deepest one, the darkest one, which would be Golos Mitzrayim. But we're not there yet. Now we're talking about Yaakov's last 17 years. So basically from being 100, from 130 years old till 147 when he would pass away. This chapter talks about Yaakov's passing. So it says he lived 17 years, as the Balaturim says, 17 is gematria teiv. This is the best, these were the best years, because this was the only time in his life where he had total peace. Well, not total, but almost total peace. He was with his son, his beloved son Yosef, Binyamin, the other Shvatim, with his family, and they were prospering. Before that, 22 years, Yaakov had thought he lost Yosef. Before that was the ordeals with Esau, his brother, and Lavan before that. I mean, it was a difficult life. Like he tells Pari in last week's chapter, he tells him, I lived a short and painful life, short compared to his, par- to his parents, Yitzchak living 180 and Avram living 175. So these are the 17 best years. As the Tzemach Sadek has the Al-Tareb, how could you say the best years in Mitzrayim? Of all places, not in Eretz Yisrael, not in Israel. Because in Mitzrayim, Yisun Ermin Acheshach, when you were able to extract the light from the darkest place, from a corrupt, depraved country, that is the most powerful light of all. And then the continuing chapter talks about Yaakov preparing to move on to the next reality, to the next stage. And he calls in Yosef and his sons. He blesses Menashe and Ephraim, or Ephraim and Menashe. And then the continuing story, how he blesses each one of the tribes. And then about Yaakov's passing. And then the end of the chapter is about the Shvatim, how all of them passed away, and finally Yosef as well. Yosef, the last part, the verses talk about Yosef saying to his brothers, please make sure that you, your children, that though, I'll be, though that I will be buried here, that make sure when we leave Egypt, they should take me back with them to Eretz Yisrael, which they did after the long Golis Mitzrayim when they left Egypt and went back to the Promised Land. So the first most obvious question is Vayichi. The chapter is called Vayichi, though it talks about the passing. Similar to Chaya Sada, the life of Sada, though it talks about her passing. So the answer is because, as we learn, the Gemara says in this week's chapter, doesn't say the word death, Vayomas, doesn't say Vayomas and Yaakov. Why? Because Yaakov Leimes didn't pass away. The Gemara asked, what do you mean? He was eulogized. He was embalmed. He was buried. How could you say he didn't pass? It says, Mazari Bechaim Afu Bechaim. As his children are alive, he too is alive. That means, in some way, he continues living on. So it makes sense. Vayechi Yaakov. So even though it's talking about his passing, but he lives on. And when do you really see someone living on? After they're not here physically. When they're here physically, you could say they exert influence due to their physical presence. But if they're physically not here and they continue to influence and inspire, and we can talk about it over, almost over 3,500 <laughs> 3, years later, that tells you the person is truly living a true eternal life. As the Gemara says, the Medr says, 
Tzadikim gam b'misosim kruim chayim. Even in their deaths, righteous people are called alive. And wicked people are called dead even when they're alive. Because life is not just biological life. Life is spiritual life. Life is a life of love, of inspiration. A life that has, that has impacted people in a positive way, that has changed the world in some way. So v'yichi Yaakov. And that's what we remember, v'yichi. And despite the shifts and transitions, however you explain them, the, the, the life of Yaakov continues on through his children and ultimately through us. Millennia later, being the direct descendants of the Shvatim. So that's lesson number one of what real life is. And you and I right now, as we live in this physical world in the year 2021, we also have that, that option. Will we live temporary lives? meaning instant gratification, doing things that are just for the moment, or lives that leave a permanent impact. And every time a person does a good deed, a mitzvah, yichud zenitzchi, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, that it creates, it generates a unification, it generates an energy that is forever, and changes the world now and forever. So we have the power to create eternity, the power to create immortality. Mashiach comes, all of this will be revealed in the fullest sense of the world, word, where everyone will be reunited. Nisham is big gufim, souls within bodies. Now, a bunch of questions came in in this week's chapter, so let's go through some of them. Why did Yaakov send Yehuda to Egypt to set up a yeshiva? Don't parents do this for their children rather than the other way around? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I was once taught that Yehuda went to Mitzrayim first in order to set up a Torah environment in advance. Yes. Which means Yaakov sent Yehuda before he was coming down to Geshen, which is uh, the, that area where they lived in Egypt. He sent Yehuda to set up a yeshiva as Rashi brings from Medrash. So, what, so that when Yaakov arrived, there would be a kosher environment, etc. But don't parents do this in advance for the children and not the other way around? Yes, that's an interesting point. But first of all, this is a very unique situation. This wasn't like they were living in a peaceful place. And of course, Yaakov was older than his children, which is obvious, and he taught them and educated them. So of course he set up a yeshiva, or however he taught them, whether he tutored them, or they were involved in the Shembeever, yeshiva of Shembeever. But regardless, Yaakov definitely set it up for them. But here was a unique situation. Because of the famine, they, had, they were forced, and Yosef was living in Egypt, they were forced to go down to Mitzrayim, which is what God wanted. And now they're adult children. And this was a particular thing because Mitzrayim needed a special bitter, a special refinement. The, the great challenge of such a country, as I said, a depraved country, Ervis Ha'odetz. So here, Yaakov wanted to prepare the ground even more than the regular situation where a parent educates children. Because they would need every tool and every resource and everything at their disposal because they would be dealing with a dark Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim comes from the word Mitzrayim v'gvulim. Limits, constraints, inhibitions, fears, insecurities. Everything Mitzrayim represents. So he sent Yehuda, Yehuda from the word Heidah, Bittl, to create a Bittl in a, in, a, in a country that was completely consumed with itself. Later we learn about Pari. Thought he was God. Self-made individuals. Denying God's existence. In Mitzrayim, the Gemara says that the rain doesn't fall, so they look at the Nile, they worship the Nile. 
They don't look up to heaven, even for their reigns. <coughs> Excuse me. So therefore he sent Yehuda the, the, the ultra opposite, the diametric opposite of yeshes, of egocentric life, bitl, to set up a yeshiva. So this is a particular function and particular role, which also teaches us in our lives the same idea, that especially when you're facing a special challenge, you have to accumulate and increase as much res- many resources as possible to really launch it properly, which would give ultimately the Yidin, the Jewish people, the power to go through this dark exile that they were about to go through after these 17 years and after Yosef passed away and after all the Shvatim passed away and Vayokamelachadosh and a new king rises and enslaves the Jews, as we'll read the next Sefer Shmois, the beginning of next week's parsha. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, our Sunday night Torah warrior here. In Parsha's Vayechi, Yaakov assembles his family and is about to reveal when Mashiach would come. Yes, Bikish Yaakov Legalis But the heavens decided Yaakov would be wrong if he revealed it, so he was stricken with temporary memory loss to prevent him from saying it. Yeah, he was not allowed to say it. If Yaakov was considered wrong, how is that any how is that any different from the Rebbe revealing it by saying the time for Mashiach has arrived now? By the way, I completely agree with the Rebbe revealing it, because I feel he did so to inspire us to do everything we can to end Gaulus immediately and begin. Gula. So yes, this interesting question, um, which really comes down to a question that is asked by the Rebbe in, the, in various sikhs. Some of them are printed, which it wasn't just yeah, it wasn't just the Rebbe, but throughout the generations, there were people who revealed the cats. They said this in this year would be a, uh, a auspicious time for the Gula. So why is it, how is that consistent with Yaakov not allowing be allowed to reveal it? So generally speaking, the whole point is this. It does say in the Gemara that a person should not talk about and it's a very negative expression about anyone that tries to reveal when Mashiach will come because it could also create tremendous disappointment. So that is why you don't find anyone said this in this day, day this in this year, even though those that did say it because they wanted to inspire. And there's long discussions of how you reconcile the two. Basically, the goal to inspire was not a contradiction because it was said it was an esudotzen. It was an auspicious time, as I mentioned. No one said it is absolutely today. A cat's meant this is an auspicious time. And unfortunately, many of these times passed, came and went, because we weren't zeich, we didn't merit, either because we didn't do what we had to do, or whatever the reason was. But overall, the lesson to, to, to Yaakov was, and the lesson we learned from Yaakov was, that you have to be careful. Remember the Rebbe, famous Sikha, Tovshin Mem Aleph, I believe it was, where the Rebbe spoke about this and this, at this time of the year, Asara B'Tevis, the same period, Pashat Vayechi, and explained, imagine what was it been. Yaakov would have told them, we, at the time, the Gula could, we didn't know when the Gula would come. But the bottom line is, in Tovshin Mem Aleph, the Gula had not come yet. So Yaakov would tell them that in Tov if the ghoul is going to come. What exactly, what kind of inspiration would that have been? It would be thousands of years from now. And the answer is that if Yaakov had told them, the goal was that it should be earlier. That the point was to inspire them to do the work, that it should come earlier. But the Abishad decided that's not the appropriate way to do it. So though there's that concept of yearning for Mashiach, but bottom line is, 
we are not spelling out exactly the date. However, when it comes to the Rebbe, the Rebbe said something that is critical here. He said, which means it's not just it's an auspicious time. We actually finished the Birurim and now is the time. In the famous Purim Tavshim Em Zayin Sicha, in 1987, the Rebbe spoke about this. And he said, you can't say that the Friedrich Rebbe saying Gul is going to come in our time is only a ketz. Because he published it and it's Lodotus. The Rebbe made it very clear. So the only reason the Rebbe said that Gula didn't come yet because the Nasi, it went over from the Nasi to Akel. That was the Rebbe's words. That after much effort, the only answer he found was it went over from the leader to the people that we have to do something. So the Rebbe's tone was very different. It wasn't just an auspicious time. And it could happen and not, or maybe not happen. We're talking now that the Rebbe is saying clearly that Veda Sabarim are finished. And that changes the whole thing because he's talking about the Metzius. That he sees that the, the, all the work that was done. Yaakov didn't say that. Yaakov didn't say the Berurim were finished. Yaakov was going to say this is the Ketz. Berurim finished means that you actually finished the 288 sparks refining them. All the three previous times of Ace of, uh, Ratzin, auspicious time for the Gul, it doesn't say they finished the Berurim. It says now's the time and it could be Achishena. And the Eberstol already finished the rest of the Berurim. In other words, it's like the Avuka, the great flame that will draw those sparks. But not that we actually refined each spark from the bottom up. Now it's so the, the, the exact opposite. We finished the work. And that's why the Rebbe is saying it. Which changes the whole equation. That's not the same thing that Yaakov was doing. Yaakov was doing it, as I said, to be made, at least he wanted to inspire them and encourage them that they should do what they have to do and let's finish the job and the rest of the sparks will already be elevated automatically. For example, sparks in America. No one lived in America then. They lived in Israel, or at least in the Middle East area. So what about all the sparks everywhere in the world? That would have been Mamaila Lamata, like the great flame drawing and attracting all the sparks. The Rebbe is saying we've already been all over the world and we finished the Birurim. Mamata Lamata, from the bottom up. So now the ghoul is ready to come, and that's what, we, that's what the Rebbe announced. That's the key distinction between the two. Okay. Next question. Why was Yeshev not buried in Israel like his father Yaakov? In the Pasha, both Yaakov and Yeshev sadly passed away. Neither of them wanted to be buried in Egypt and left instructions in their world making their opinion clear. Right away, Yaakov was taken to Israel to be buried, and he was honored by a large procession of Egyptian diplomats. But Yesav was buried in Egypt, and only a few hundred years later were his bones exhumed and brought to Israel. My question is, why didn't Yesav get the same treatment as his father and be buried in Israel right away? Waiting a few hundred years seems to be disrespectful to Yesav's wishes. Unless Yesav allowed this delay, knowing there would be a lesson for us to learn from it, what would that lesson be? Well, <laughs> a clear setup to the Rebbe's Classic sikh that he spoke in the year Tavshem Emches by Yechi, in the year 1988, or maybe it was still 87, but it was the Parshat by Yechi Tavshem Emches, and it's printed in the Sefer HaSikhas Tavshem Emches. A very powerful talk where he asks exactly this question, and he answers. First, we'll talk in the language of Chesidus. Yaakov's Inyan was in the world of Atzillus. The Ovis, Heinehen Amarkova, they were complete transparent channels of the divine in this world. Avram was chesed, 
Yitzchak was Gvura, Yaakov was Teferis. And that's why they lived, they were shepherds, somewhat detached from the material world, relatively speaking. And they were Mamshech Halakus, they drew down the divine in this world, each one through their own way, Chesed, Gvura, Teferis. Yeshev was the first, even though he began as a shepherd, like his father and forefathers, and like his brothers, but he ended up being thrust into Egypt. So Yosef is Yesod of Atzilus, that is Mashpia into Malchus and ultimately into Biyah. Biyah is already, Misham Yipodet is already, or Misham is already a separate entity. Atzilus is Kulei, completely divine. It's a structure, but it's a divine structure. Biyah, Bria, Yitzirasiya, especially the lower levels, are already a separate entity. Why? Because Joseph, Yosef's job, mission, was to draw down the energy of his father Yaakov and Yitzchak and Avram into Biyah, into Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim v'gvulim, a world that is less divine, and even make that, make that also a divine environment. So therefore, they had different roles. Yaakov, therefore, where did he end? He stayed in Mitzrayim for 17 years, but then goes back to Etzisrael. He belongs in the Mokum of Etzisrael. Etzisrael is like Atzillus, a holy place. Yosef's Zinyan is to remain in Mitzrayim and Majbir Bar in his lifetime to sustain and provide for the food and sustenance of the people. But even after his passing, he remains. And the Rebbe says, he remains to give the Jews continued hope. Since he made, took the, the, had his brothers take an oath, a vow, that they would take his bones back with the, back to Yisrael. So the Jews, throughout the difficult goals that they would soon be enduring, always had that promise in mind. So they knew that Yosef was with them. They knew just as Yosef is going to return, they will return. Because that's what Yosef's union is, to remain in Mitzrayim. With the, Yaakov's union was to go to Yisrael. That's where his place was. For a certain period of time, he was in Mitzrayim to also help give strength. As I mentioned before, with Yehuda, sending Yehuda to build the yeshiva, etc. The Rebbe then said the same we see in our generation. The Yosef of our generation, the Friedrich Rebbe, is where? Is not in Yisrael. He's here in New York. He's in America. In Chutzlaretz. Because the Yosef gives strength that even in the world where there's a Golis, that we should know he's with us. So each Sadiq and each Rebbe has his role to play. So Yesus' role was actually one to inspire and keep us knowing that I'm with you, even in this dark Golis, and together we will return at the time of the Geula, Geulas Mitzrayim, and in our day, the Geulas Amitis Vashlem. The Sikh is a very powerful Sikh to learn and study, especially this week. Check it out. Vayichi Tov if we count Menashe and Ephraim as part of the 12 tribes, then including all 12 sons of Yaakov, we would have 14 tribes. But we only have 12. What exactly is going on here? Why are two of Yaakov's sons not considered part of the 12 tribes? Or another way to put it, are there 12 tribes, 13 tribes, or 14 tribes? So we read in this week's Pasha, where Yaakov says that though he had 12 sons, through the 12 tribes, he said that Ephraim and Menashe will be like Reuven and Shimon. He essentially gave them the title and the status of being tribes. 
So Yosef basically broke, breaks into two tribes, Ephraim and Menashe. And then you don't count Yosef because Yosef is split into two, so it's 13. But it's still not 12. So the Malbim and other commentaries explain that the, generally speaking it's 12 tribes. Because in the situations where you count Shevet Levi among the tribes, then you don't count Menashe and Ephraim. You count Yosef. That's 12. When you don't count Levi, for example, Chalukah Saaretz, when the land was, was separated, was divided to each tribe, and Levi doesn't get a section in Israel because they're, they don't have a piece of land, as the Torah says, because they're sustained and there's places in Yerushalayim. So when you don't count Levi, then you count Ephraim and Menashe, so there you have again 12, because Levi is not counted and Yosef is not counted because Ephraim and Menashe are counted. Sometimes Ephraim and Asher are referred to as half-tribes. Like Yosef split into two. So that two would also make them 12, because Ephraim and Menashe together make one. But the fact is, that's really not an accurate, full accurate explanation, because Yaakov did say they will be like Reuven and Shimon. That means separate tribes, full tribes. So the answer is regarding Shevet Levi. And that's how you have Shifte Yudke, Yudbe Shifte Yudke, the 12 Shifti Yudke, divine tribes. Okay. Did Ye- Since we're talking right about Yosef and his brothers, another question came in, which is really for Pasha Vayeshev, but already I'll address it. Was Yosef superior to his brothers? Did Yosef dream where his brothers would bow down to him? And it was, an, was that an illusion that his soul came from a higher source? The brothers had a type B soul and Yosef had an A soul. I wouldn't use the word higher soul because every soul has its own strength and we don't know which souls are greater and each soul has its power. We would say that in the context of what was going on in this narrative, Yesuf was their leader as we see that they did bow to him when they later came to Mitzrayim. The dream was fulfilled. The big question is Yehuda seems to be the one that everybody should have bowed to because he's the Melech. Kingship, kingdom, kingship was given to Yehud. But for different reasons, the Eberster wanted Yosef first to be leader. Discussed it in the past based on Ashallah, that first you need Yosef to be the leader, and then ultimately Yehuda would be leader, as we read, we read in yesterday's Haftarah. So in that sense that he's a leader, and they bowed to him, was because Yosef was the Mashpiyah, as I said before, Yesod of Atzillus, Mashpiyah Bar, Mashbir Bar, he was Mashpiyah, he transmitted to them, he was a source of their sustenance. So in that sense, he's their leader. But it's, to be careful when we talk about higher and lower, because every shevet had its unique role. But in this context, yes, Yosef was a leader, and that therefore had a certain element that he was mashpia and transmitted to the rest of the tribes. Okay. Let's now move to Asar Betevis. So Asar Betevis, of course, is the Torah tells us, Tanakh tells us that this, why do we fast on Asar Betevis? Because on this day was the siege of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon surrounded the city of Jerusalem, made a motzer, a siege. Now ultimately, a while later, this siege, he finally breached the wall, and that would be on the 17th of Tammuz. And three weeks later would be the burning down of the Beis Amidus, the destruction of the temple. So it's really a series of events. You don't have the, the siege, you don't have the rest of the things happening. 
So the Rebbe, in a very interesting sikha, in Tavshin Lamed Ches, which was after the heart attack, actually, and the Rebbe began, that was the first time the Rebbe began speaking Divrei Kfushin, which means words of inspiration, words of, of uh, consolation during the time of a fast day. The Rebbe renewed the custom, and he spoke on the Sarabatevas then both in the evening and by day, said a Maimer as well. So he spoke, he was quoted Avudraham. Avudraham is a, is a classic book of halachic collection where he says that a Sarabatevas has something unique to it. It says, that in the essence, the core, in the middle of this day, so he equates that, that also says where else? By Yom Kippur. Just as Yom Kippur is more powerful than Shabbos, that's why we fast when Yom Kippur is on Shabbos. The only fast, even Tisha B'Av we don't fast. So too, we would fast if it was a Shabbos. The thing is, they designated, the way it was set up in the calendar, a Sarabatevis can never be Shabbos. But there are lochus of a Sarabatevis is Friday. The bottom line, but it has that power. So the Rebbe asked the question, Asarabatevis is seemingly a lesser fast. It's not even full 24 hours like Tishabov. Tishabov, the destruction of the temple. So why is Asarabatevis not Tishabov? Tishabov is not Deich Shabbos. If it's on Shabbos, you fast on Sunday. Tishabov Nitche. And the Rebbe's answer is because you look at the root of the problem. Tishabov could never have happened if there was no siege on Jerusalem on Asar Batevis. So you nip it in the bud, so to speak, and then it would never have happened. So though Tishabov itself is the actual destruction of far harsher fast day, that's why it's 24 hours, it starts in the evening, and, and, we, and, we, and we sit like a veilus, you, you dim the lights, you sit on low chairs, etc. Start much stronger laws of a veilus of mourning, but that's because the actual, that's the actual death, if so to speak, the actual destruction. But what led to it was Asara Betevis. And the Rebbe explained, what does that mean in Avoida? In life, when we have challenges, so often, you know, something happens, you don't do anything about it. Think of an infection. Small infection, God forbid. You don't do anything about it. It begins to fester. And then it begins to rage until the point it becomes out of control. Had you nipped it in the bud, you would have avoided the whole thing. So in Tehra, there's the concept of which means build a gate, build a barrier. In other words, if something's not permitted, don't just avoid doing it. Make sure you don't even get to a situation that you can, that bully deavere. You shouldn't come even to a situation of a potential. For example, the laws of Yichud. And not to be isolated, a man and a woman that are not husband and wife. That itself is not an issue that I said. However, because it could lead to other things if they are isolated, so you make a siyog. And so many other siyogim are to protect the holiness. The wall around Jerusalem is the protection. You begin with that. You don't wait till, until the last minute. If you live a life of Kaddish Atzmach, the Mutalach, if you sanctify yourself, even the things that are allowed, that prevents a situation of having to ever come to, God forbid, anything that is prohibited. And that's called a really sanctified life.
You don't just avoid doing. You don't just avoid doing certain things. You create a situation where your whole life is holy. It's like building a home. The home is in a holy environment. So automatically, certain things you won't come to. And that's the true lesson of Asada Betevis. And that's why it's such a powerful day. That when Nebuchadnezzar built a siege, created a siege around the city, around the wall, that was the beginning of the end. Now, had the Eden done shuva, and properly then, the Rebbe explains, then the siege would have turned into a positive one. The Samach Melabov, Samach also means support. That it would become a supporting situation. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. So the lesson is a very clear one. And that's why Sarah Ba Davis, if, if it were, it has the power to be more powerful than Shabbos because you look at the root of a problem. That's the real way to identify something. You don't look at the end results, the circumstances, the, the consequences, rather. You look at what brought them there. So even though the consequence itself could be worse than what brought it there, but, it would, but what brought it there, would, it would never have happened if you not had that original problem, that original infection, so to speak. So that's the lesson. Hello, Rabbi. If I understand correctly, the fast of the Tenth of Tevis is to commemorate the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, which led to the destruction of Solomon's temple. And also to commemorate the 72 rabbis who wrote the Septuagint. I don't even know how to pronounce it, to be honest. It's talking about the Greek translation of the Bible, of the Torah. The Greek king ordered them to, set, to uh, translate it. It's called... Maybe someone can tell me how to pronounce it. But anyway, S-E-P-T-U-A-G-I-N-T. Septuagint, Septuagint. Okay. While well, I understand the siege of Jerusalem is a terrible, tragic event warranting a fast day, why is the writing of this translation considered a bad thing, especially, especially since we are taught that miraculously all 72 rabbis wrote the exact same words, and therefore the Greeks weren't able to find discrepancies and use any discrepancies to cause problems for us. Is there a connection between this translation and the destruction of the temple? So there's a Gemara that says, and it's connected to this, that the day when they translated the Torah into Greek is considered like the day of the breaking of the tablets. Now the breaking of the tablets is associated more with the 17th of Tammuz. But regardless, you see a negative association. The question is why? We translate the Torah into English, into other languages, and it's not considered a negative thing. On the contrary, it allows the Torah to be taught and understood by people who don't know the original Hebrew. So the Rebbe, in a very powerful sikha, I think it was Parshas Ve'era Tovshin Mem Aleph. Yeah, Ve'era Tovshin Mem Aleph spoke about it and says, Kiyem Shviris Aluchas. It doesn't say it's like breaking the tablets, like the day when the tablets were broken. Why? Because the fact of the matter is, the Jewish people, when they saw that Moshe did not return, and they calculated that he was supposed to return from being on the mountain, they looked and they felt they needed a Rebbe, they needed a Moshe Rabbeinu. When they came to Aaron, Aaron acquiesced because he knew that Moshe would return and he thought it would become a yomtiv because Moshe returns. Moshe returned a little late. So the very day of the Shvira Saluchas, it itself could have gone two directions. It could have turned into a great holiday. Moshe would return, they would have celebrated. 
or it turned into them building the golden calf. So the day itself is, has both sides. The same thing is with the translation. Translation of the Torah in itself can go two ways. It can be misused, because now people who, don't, who are not respecting the Torah can use it and even abuse it, which has been done. Or it can be used in a good way, to teach, to educate. So the Gemara is saying, because it has both potentials. The Rebbe cited then the story that when the Alter Rebbe began explaining Tichsidus Chabad, explaining Tichsidus in a very rational way that people, everyone could understand it with their intelligence, human intelligence, some Chassidim began to cry. Why were they crying? Because they saw that now this precious jewel, the precious crown jewel of the king, as Chassidus has explained, as the Alter Rebbe explains Chassidus as being that most precious stone, can also be misused by people who don't appreciate. So their crying was because it can go the other direction. On the other hand, it could also save the child, the sick child, as the example of the Alter Rebbe, that the, child, the king's child was so sick, comatose state, and the doctor said the only way that maybe he can save him, maybe he can save him, is to crush the most precious jewel in the king's crown and take the powder and mix it with water and try to force it between the clenched teeth of the child and maybe a drop will save his life. And the king said immediately, yes. Now, of course, a lot of it could drop on the floor and therefore there's what to cry about. But on the other hand, there's also the ability to save the child's life, which is what Chassidus came to do. Then the darkest moments before Mashiach, getting the deepest secrets of Torah, while also being a taste of Mashiach's Torah. So therefore, it has both sides. Again, similar to Tzad is the Motzer, the siege, could, had they done what they had to do, it could have turned into a positive thing. But they didn't, it turned into a negative. So we always have these two options. Okay. A few questions, a few follow-up questions. Let's start with Hey Tavis. Does the ruling on Hey Tavis mean that every chassid has part ownership of the books? Another person wrote, if the courts ruled on Hey Tavis that a Rebbe and his property and his farm belong to the chassidim, and if Barry was one of the chassidim, well then by default, wouldn't Barry be entitled to a portion of this farm? I asked this seriously and not to make fun. Well, the answer is no, absolutely not. Not about Barry, not about any individual. This is not about the, the, the name of the person. The point that the Rebbe belongs to Chassidim, and therefore Sfarim belongs to Chassidim, is the body of Chassidim, that's Sibur. It's not like we can now go say, you know what, let's split the library and give everyone a share, sell it for a billion dollars and give everyone their, their equal share. The point is it's not, a, it's not pri- property in that sense that can be done that fashion. It's public property in the sense that, but like the Teter. The Teter was given to Har Sinai. The Teter, Teter, Tzivilonu, Meishu, Merosha, Kilis, Yaakov. It's everyone's Merosha. But it's not like we can go now, split up the Teter, and sell it, and everybody takes their portion. It's beyond the Yochit. So it belongs to Chassidim means it belongs to the whole body of Chassidim. And that Tzibur ain't a mess. You can't split up a Tzibur. The role of a Tzibur is exactly the collective. That's what gives it its eternity. It would defeat the whole purpose. If you would take it and say, okay, not just give it to one heir, we'll give it to a million heirs. It's the same, the same problem. The whole argument was, is the, teta, is the, is the library and the svarim, 
private property or public property. If it's private property, it doesn't matter one or a thousand or a million. It's not individual. It's public property, and therefore, it's a different category altogether. The Rebbe is not a private citizen. He belonged to Chassidim. The Rebbe belonged to a Chassidim in a sense, the Nitzchis, the eternity of the Rebbe, lives on, and the Svarim live on. And that's why it belongs to Chassidim in that sense. So it's not about splitting up the pie and everybody gets a piece of it. And at the same time, we all are part of it, and it all does belong to us in the sense of using it, the learning it, and so on. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, during the incident of the books, the individual who took the books apparently did some things inappropriately by taking the books without permission. People are fallible, and sometimes we make mistakes. I think that although he made a mistake, he rectified his mistake and did shuva by returning the books after the course told him to. I don't represent Chabad Lubavitch. I'm just one person in the community and I speak for myself only. But I would like to publicly forgive him for what he did. He was a grandchild of the Friedrich Rebbe and was a Jewish soul and deserves the opportunity to make amends and be forgiven. One part of a true tshuva, of true tshuva is when someone has the opportunity to repeat the mistake and doesn't repeat the mistake. When we, then we know the tshuva is complete. After the incident of the books, I am not aware of this individual doing it again, taking more books, more books, so we can assume he learned his lesson and his tshuva was complete. This forgiveness should not offset the simcha we celebrated on Hey Tevis. We can still celebrate the books being returned, the courts beautifully defining what a Rebbe is, and also that it was not right to take those books, and they had to be returned. May Hashem bless Klal Yisrael that we are not put into positions where we are tempted to make mistakes. And if Chaz Roshon, we make mistakes, we should have the opportunity to do tshuva and move on and become stronger people and be ready and prepared to greet Mashiach and may it be right away. Okay, well, I'm sure some people are not going to like the tone and the message here, but I will say the following. Um, whether a person does tshuva or not, that's between them and God, and I don't want to comment on that. Let's all hope they did tshuva, and, and it's received, and so on. Whether we have the right to forgive or not forgive, meaning who says it's our right not to forgive either. I mean, this was a, an issue brought up both in the legal sense of the word, and the Agud Deschid Chabad won the case, but also Ruchni Yizdik, yes, he did challenge a very critical point that the Rebbe wanted to clarify and rectify, and that is that this is not private property, and that Chabad lives on, and the Svarim are part of Chabad and part of the Rebbe, and the Rebbe himself belongs to Chassidim and so on. So his challenge of that was a, was a travesty. At the same time, it was rectified. It's not a personal matter here. Why he was the person that, that perpetrated this, I'm not going to get into that. It's not the issue. But the key thing is that it was rectified, and hopefully, maybe, maybe you could say, the fact that he's the one that was the catalyst to create this conclusion that until then we didn't have a legal ruling on the matter, you can also give him credit in a way. Even though that was not his intention, obviously. It's like, when a, a contract is challenged and it's ratified, then it's far stronger, like we have now. Now we have a clear picture of what a Rebbe is, what the Svarim are, but the, the whole idea of the Rebbe belonging to Chassidim, the Svarim belonging to Chassidim, the Nitzchis of it, the eternity. 
But I'd rather stay away from the personal because that is a completely side issue. I don't think it's our business altogether. This was not a personal fight. The Rebbe was, the Rebbe was not fighting for, that, that, that for, for inheritance. The Rebbe was fighting for what the cause of what a Rebbe really represents and what the Friedrich Rebbe wanted to be done with the Svarim. They did not want to split it between his children. That was not his goal for all the reasons that have been elaborated upon. So that is what I want to say about this topic. And I think we have to avoid any personalization, as I said. Stick to the theme itself. The theme is celebration of the Svarim, the Dan Nosach of the Svarim. Our job is to learn in them, perpetuate them, spread their message, and continue to spread Yiddishkeit, Mitzvahs, Chassidus, Primis Ater, everywhere we can reach. That's the Heiteva celebration. Nothing more, nothing less. Meaning it doesn't have to get into any other type of topics. How it came about, everything comes about in its own way. That's the point I would make on this topic. Okay. Now, following up the discussions of uh, crowdfunding campaigns, someone wrote, I once asked a Rav, what is better, to give $10 to one cause or $1 to 10 causes? The Rav told me that it's better to give $1 to 10 causes since technically $10 to one cause is a single mitzvah while $1 to 10 causes is 10 mitzvahs. So this is a discussion. Pruta, pruta, mitzvah, Is it better? There's a whole mimer actually from the, from the Semach Tzedek about this based on the Alter Rebbe's mimer. Is it better to give one, a, a, a single coin, like in this case, $1 to 10 people or one, $10, $10 to one person? And each one has their quality. Is it true that commerce in this case is more mitzvahs and more people are helped? Because it's not always about the amount of money they give. But on the other hand, like the story with Abnacham Chernobler, that someone gave him a certain sum of money and then a woman came and she needed the money. It was exactly that amount that she needed to marry off her child. And, there, and it was like, Abnacham Chernobler then said, you know what? He had a second thought that maybe we should wait. And maybe uh, instead of giving it to one person, maybe I should divide the money to different people. So more people will benefit. Bottom line, long story short, he, he, he wasn't making any resolution. It wasn't going this way, not that way. And he realized at some point, bottom line, the money is still sitting by him. Then he realized, of course, the Yetzirah is not going to tell him don't give the money because he would never listen to that. So better came with a better way, a better, a better kunz, very shrewd. Do a bigger mitzvah. He knew that Rebbe wants to do mitzvahs. Do a bigger mitzvah, give it to others. But he said, when did I have that thought? Only after I, first, I was about to give it to this woman. That means that thought came from the other side. And he called her back and he gave her the whole sum. So it all comes down to different situations, not always black and white. But, um, but the point is well taken, and thank you for that. Okay. Now, there are a few questions, a few follow-up questions which I shall do Right now, let's do the follow-up questions and then we'll go to other questions. Hanukkah. So this is a follow-up. I don't know if it's a question or a statement, but I'll read it. A good vach, a freilich and lichtich in Hanukkah. This question came in the beginning of the week when it was still Hanukkah. And a good tachedish, Rabbi, Jacob, Rabbi Jacobson. The awesomeness of Zeus Hanukkah confronts me to think of the Hasidic concept of super-rationality. Apparently the person is referring to the eighth day, eight, being shemir esaheketh, so it's higher than the regular structure of rational consciousness. While I want to embrace super-rationality as an explanation for transcendent understanding, if you will, I am troubled by what others may regard super-rationality as 
Chaz B'Shalom, a sub as opposed to superconscious rationality. Thank you for illuminating this topic. Hatzlacha Begashmis and Baruchnis to you and yours, which I know includes us, your Meaningful Life family. Well, just to decipher a bit what he's saying, is that I spoke about this point, that Zeis Hanukkah goes beyond the seven, and we go to the eighth. And the eighth represents a much higher level of transcendent. He was referring to some people see it necessarily as a lower level. So he's, asking, so he's thanking for the clarity on this topic. Hanukkah presence. Regarding what you said in last week's program, that it seems to be that presence and Hanukkah guilt are somewhat the same thing, I happened to just read an article where the writer seems to say that the minig is dafke money, guilt. And he brings down a mucker from Chelikud Lukute Sichus. Don't remember what page. Lukute Sichus, volume 10. And the reason we give Hanukkah guilt is to educate our children to use money in the proper way. Thank you for your amazing work. So I did not look up the letter, which I should have, and I apologize for that. Um, whether the Rebbe negates the concept of giving presents, I did say last week, I don't think so. But if there's a source, obviously I defer to any source. So I will look it up. And uh, But thank you for writing. Following up Dr. Feldman, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I want to clarify a letter I wrote about Dr. Feldman, which you read last week's program. Although I compared the Rebbe and Dr. Feldman, I wasn't trying to say Dr. Feldman was equal to the Rebbe. My comparison was in their selfless dedication to the community, the Rebbe in spiritual matters and Dr. Feldman in medical matters. If someone were to say Babe Ruth was the best baseball player and Mozart was the best composer, it wouldn't be meant as an insult to Ruth or Mozart, but... But, both, but more simply to say both were the best in the world at their particular job. I meant no offense toward the Rebbe or Dr. Feldman, just simply in my opinion, the Rebbe was the best world Jewish leader and Dr. Feldman was the best doctor. May Mashiach be revealed immediately along with all the promises made by Hashem, including Tchiyas HaMesim, the resurrection. And may great men like the Rebbe and Dr. Feldman sit and bring with us again. Okay. Not, not, no comment. Let's go back to a few more questions. So, as you've, those of you that follow this program know that there are themes that are recurring themes because they're so fundamental and so nuanced and many people struggle or deal with them. You know, when we talk about the Mashiach, we talk about the Rebbe. So one of them is Shalom Bayis. So as you may notice, every few weeks I address it because many more questions come in and there's still questions I need to address. So that's called the Shalom Bayis uh, column, the Shalom Bayis series. So I want to go through a few more Shalom Bayis questions as time allows. And then, um, yeah, so here's a question. What can I do about my husband singing objectionable songs? And more specifically, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, during the holiday season when I go shopping with my husband, many stores play the non-Jewish uh, uh, Xmas songs on their speakers. While we can't control the playlist they choose, I just ignore the songs. But my husband embarrasses me and audibly sings along with the songs. I told him it's a chil Hashem, that's a creating uh, heaven, to sing along and is participating in Goyesh Avedizar, in non-Jewish idolatry. He said he is not trying to affirm or promote their Avedizar, but he thinks the songs are cute and catchy, and he feels there's nothing wrong with singing about a snowman jingling some bells. 
I am so embarrassed and I prefer to shop alone, but I need him to come along so he can use his credit card. <laughs> so he can use his credit card. Okay. How can I resolve this issue? Well, I smile about the credit card, you know. First of all, he won't give you the credit card to do it on your own. That's question number one I have. Number two, um, maybe it should be more than just him. you're using him to pay, but maybe you want to spend, spend time with your husband. That may help as well. I'm not, I'm not blaming the, the person who's asking this question. I'm just, just reacting to the last line, but I'll get back to that in a moment. Well, it is true that um, it's not appropriate to sing these songs, especially you don't have to do that just because he finds them cute. doesn't mean he has to sing along. And, uh, and the second, on the other hand, we all know that not a husband shouldn't be his wife's rov, and a wife shouldn't be her husband's mashpia. It's not, it's not good for shalom bias. If you see something that your spouse does that's wrong, you have to find ways that doesn't seem condescending or seems disrespectful because it could also create tensions, unnecessary ones, either through third party or in subtle ways, in loving ways, because that usually works a lot better. So I would, have not, I would not approach this in a critical way. I would speak to him, not maybe even when you're doing it privately, when you come home, and just talk about it like in a way that's not accusatory. Because then that creates defensiveness and becomes a vicious cycle. And he doesn't like something you did, you don't like something he did, and it becomes an argument, which is not going to resolve the issue. So you have to find some, be intelligent, chachmas noshim ban sebesa. A woman has a particular intelligence, God gave her, bini isha, or bisha, to find ways to communicate in your husband in a way that will have an effect. Because the key here is not who's right and wrong, it's having the right effect. And there's ways to say things, and I think that's the key to this whole thing, is how to communicate. And going back to the credit card, and maybe that should be it. You can tell your husband in a very loving way, you know, I love to go to shopping with you. You know, we have time to spend together, people are busy. And let's talk and so on. Let's engage with him so it doesn't even allow room for him to start to singing away. If you're engaging and speaking to him, if he sees you as just, if he sees himself just as an adjunct to give a credit card, so then he's on his own, he's not with you. So why don't you make it a, a, a couple type of date? Make it a date. And the date, you engage with each other, you talk. Guaranteed that will preempt many of these issues. So that's my suggestions on this topic. Another person writes, which is not Mamish Shalom Bayez, but it touches the area of family planning, challenges in family planning. The Rebbe taught us that every child is a blessing and has been clear that his wish was that we grow our families. Yes, in 1980, the Rebbe began very strong words about to, against family planning, that people should build families. God blesses people with children. They should not in any way prevent that blessing from manifesting. I'm just adding... So continuing what this person writes. Of course, this is something that we all strive to do, and this mission lends itself to an expectation to an expectation in our communities to have big families. What does Chassidus say about circumstances that hinder one's ability to grow his or her family? Setting aside biological issues related to fertility, I'm asking about situations where a parent is dealing with mental health challenges, or there are shalom bias issues that are not easily remedied. How can, how can a person reconcile the Rebbe's directive and wish and the subsequent community pressure 
together with a reality that interferes with one's ability to fulfill it. Can a person come to a place of peace within him or herself so that he or she isn't pained by the inability to do what they intrinsically wish that they could, or they must always feel that they're, dis- that they're disappointing their family, spouse, and or children, and that they are inferior to those around them who have a baby, a baby every year. Okay. It's obvious, and it's a Dover Pashat, literally. The Rebbe spoke about it. He was not speaking about circumstances where a person needs to either ask a mashpia or a rav, and perhaps may be challenging, like you say, mental health issues or other issues. The Rebbe was speaking when all things considered equal, and the only reason is because it's inconvenient, or because you just want to have a smaller family, or what, even financial reasons. The Rebbe was not use, saying that, don't use that as an excuse for these blessings, because Parnassa comes with each child. But obviously, if a person has issues, we're not talking about fertility issues, that is not even in our control. But other issues, obviously. But just to make sure, it's good to have a, a mashpia. A rav. Not always it's a halacha question, sometimes it's more of a hashkafa question. But regardless, to make sure that you cover all your bases. So you know, and you talk about someone who's sensitive, Rabbonim, they're very sensitive to these matters. Not all are just didactic. Find someone that you can speak to, explain the situation in a confidential way. If there are things that you don't want to share, you could say to the rabbi, I'm not comfortable sharing, but you give them enough information. And I guarantee you that Teda. Teres Chesed will give the right answer that will allow a person to be able to balance the two. And then you're doing exactly what the Rebbe wants. The Rebbe didn't say, go endanger yourself, God forbid, or put yourself at risk. The Rebbe was speaking of the general topic. Yes, the community does put a certain amount of pressure, but if there are circumstances that you know in your heart and your, you and your spouse know in your, in your hearts, absolutely address it. And you're not defying, you're not like inferior. That is what needs to be done. That's what needs to be done. The Torah addresses every issue, every situation, according to that case by case. And that's all that matters. Not everybody has to know what all the factors are. There are people who have one child, there are people who have 15 children. Do we always know why? We don't know why, and we shouldn't be judging anyone. That's already, I'm speaking now to the community. Person, people go through their challenges, you don't know why, when, and even if something that you may not agree with, it's not your business. Deal with your life. The Rebbe didn't say to anybody, go check on other families why they're not having more children. The Rebbe was saying, it's a blessing. Let's encourage this blessing. Let's support it. Let's inspire it. Knowing that in the world in which we live in, people are sometimes lax in that matter. And indeed, after that, I remember it vividly, a few years later, there was like a baby boom in Chabad. You know, instead of the schools, first grades, four or five years later, were instead of one grade or two grades, it was uh, five grades, six grades, whatever the numbers were. Okay. I also refer you to episodes 15 and 86, where I discuss this topic as well about family planning. Okay. Let me deal with two more questions. One will deal with um, Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Hi, Rav Simon. Did the Rebbe, the Rebbe critique Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism? Broche v'atzloch. So Ayn Rand is known for her books, The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged. A Russian Jewish woman who very much focused on the Ani v'afsi Aid approach, which is, I am a self-made person. I don't need anyone else. She obviously did not embrace God. 
not getting now and judging her and her where her background was. But the bottom line is obviously it's antithetical to Judaism. On the contrary, with a God we become greater individuals because God gave us a divine element to our individuality. But essentially objectivism is the opposite. And there are many different aspects to this. I don't want to go through all the details. I actually had an interesting dialogue, you can call it a debate if you wish, with a, uh, the head of the Ayn Rand Institute. And you can find it online. Just type my name and Ayn Rand, you'll see the whole conversation. So he represents her philosophy. He's actually an Israeli, uh, psycholo- Israeli businessman who was, became an Ayn Rand uh, advocate and leader in that community. And I represented the other. It's, it's a very civil conversation. It's not uh, there's no, uh, no one throwing eggs at each other. But I think it really can put clarity if anybody's interested in this topic. But the main problem with the Ayn Rand philosophy is this issue. Essentially, self-made man. Basically, and that's it. There's no imanila atzmi mani. The first half. If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? So there is certain truth there, but the missing the other point, which is not kechivi etzim yodi. The pasuk says kechivi etzim yodi. The pasuk warns us, or it, 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 it tells us to avoid that temptation to think that my success is completely my own. It's lacking humility. Now, Inran was a brilliant woman, and a lot of her points, as I said, have value and legitimacy, but they have to be in, put, put into context. In context, then. You can always learn from everyone. You can learn from everyone. Okay. Let's talk the Chassidus applied question. The Chassidus question of this week. What is the difference between Sevev Kalam and Mamala Kalam? Can you please, dear Rabbi Jacobson, can you please explain the difference between the energy of Sevu Kalam and Malakalam, and which energy is better? Can you show some examples of how we see and use these energies in our daily lives? Thank you. Okay. Chsidis, um, the Lushan, is brought from Zohar. The Alta Rebbe brings it right in the beginning of Tanya, chapter 3. Malakalam, Sevu Kalam, Kulakame Kalachashiv. So the difference between mamalakalam and sevakalam, literally, mamalakalam means it, the energy, divine energy that fills existence. Sevakalam means the divine energy that surrounds existence. But as the Alter Rebbe explains later in Tanya, Perik Memches, 48, that f- f- surrounds doesn't mean literally surrounds. It means it's not internally sensed or uh, revealed. So the difference is, let's use the human faculties, the human faculties, mamalaklan, would be the kreches pnimim. You have the power of vision in your eye, the power of hearing in your ear. The mind is the, is the place where it rests in your brain. There's a oir and a keli, and each one commensurate to each other. The ear is made in a way, the container, to be able to listen to things. The eye is made in order to be a certain type of opaqueness and translucence in order to be able to see. That's classic mamalakalam. An energy fitting into a container. Sevakalam, the example in human faculties, is rotsen. I want, I will, my will and desire. Now, your will to walk or to open your eyes and see or to hear 
from the will point of view, the will is not this is, is a general will that's not commensurate to the particulars. I want to see, I want to walk, I want to talk, I want to hear things. So the Rotson remains removed from the actual faculty. It's almost like an outside force that's saying, I want this, I want that. So the will itself is not divided toward any particular container. That's what Chassidus says, the Rotson is makif, it's the entire human being, there's a Rotson. The question is, the Rotson for what? So in, in, the, in the language of the spheres, Keser is Rotson, the makif, the Yaseviv, and the Kach Mabina Das, Chesed Gurit, the first Netzachet Yaseid Malchus, those are Mamalakalam. So when you say, for example, Basar Mamoris Nivra Elam, the Abishta created the world with 10 statements, that's Mamalakalam. Specifically, the words say, Yehi Oyer, there should be light. The next day, Yehi Rakia, there should be a firmament, the heaven. And so with every creation. So in order to create, this explains you need two things. God has to want creation, then he has to specify what does he want. I want to have a home. But what, what do you want in this home? A living room, a dining room. So the want of the home, the will, is the Ratzin, is the Makiv, the Seva of Kalam which is another name for makif, or another name for igulim in Kabbalah, igulim, like a circle, it surrounds. It's not permeating, it's called transcendent energy, it transcends. And then there's imminent energy. What exactly is it that you want? And that comes into Eris Pnimim, which would be called Mamalakalam. Like you have the Kav, the Kav Chut, which is a, a thread, a line, like a paintbrush, with which creates every detail. And then you have the eagle Hagadol, is the surrounding energy, which is, gives energy to the whole picture in a very equalized way. I want a home. That's the whole home. You need that, because that's the equalizer. And then you need the specifics, which is each particular aspect. So in life, we need always these two things. That's why your mitzvahs you find so often. A talus surrounds you, like makif, save of klam. Tzitzis are strands, like primi. Uh, a sukkah surrounds us. The 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 esrog, the, the lul of an esrog, and the dalad minim, they take lekachtem lechem, you take it to your heart. So in everything in life, you're going to find these two dimensions, and everything that's really constructive is going to have an overall picture, which is more of a makif or sevuklamen, and then the specific details. And you need both. You write a business plan. What's the overall picture? What's the executive summary? And then the specifics of each particular part of that plan. And then, of course, they work together and complement each other, and they're both necessary. It says, if we only had Sevev Kalam, we wouldn't have details. If you only had details, if you only had Mamal Kalam, you wouldn't have the unification of all the details together in one cohesive tapestry. Okay, so with that, we conclude this week's My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 383. Everyone should have a very meaningful Asar Batevis transforming it into the most powerful day of correcting every form of siege, even on the matters that are only like siyoglatera, only the, bound, the walls around. And we should ultimately zeichet to the building of the third day, Beis HaMikdash Ashlishi, permanent Beis HaMikdash, should be a very simchadika week, a simchadika month, and only good news, b'teva nireva nigla. And we should be zeichet through yifutsa minasach chutza to osimar damalka meshichet. Thank you so much. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Call to. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied.
Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusupply.com slash donate.